0: Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me! Oh hear me! All pay heed! The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these fifteen. Ten! Ten commandments for all to obey. It is so important that we do not break the ten commandments. Uh, I, I sincerely hope that you know that was a joke, uh, but my name is Danny Householder. I'm a pastor here. Uh, I haven't seen you in a few weeks. My wife and I were on a trip uh, the last couple of weekends. Um, I'll get a little bit more to that in a moment, but I'm just really, really glad and refreshed to be worshiping with you all my church family. Would you just go ahead and turn to somebody around you, um, and if, if you see somebody who's not sitting with someone, just, just put it upon yourself to, to say it to them. Would you just say to somebody, I am so glad that you're here. true. We're kicking off a brand new sermon series this week. It is called Ten Commandments in Nine Weeks. The Ten Commandments truly are so important. I think that it's important before we go into the Ten Commandments to understand what they are and why they are. First off, they're God's instructions that God gives us. It says, then God gave the people all these instructions. And it says that in verse 1. And just excuse me, pretend like I'm not walking backstage right now because I had a prop that I forgot. Anybody know where that is? It's totally fine. We're going to pretend like it's a map. But don't worry about it. It's all good. I haven't preached in a few weeks. Can you tell? All right. Well, anyway, let's focus in really quick on that word then. It says, then God gave the people all these instructions. Well, What came before the then? Why did God give the people these instructions? Well, go ahead and take a look at this. It says, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of your slavery. God had freed the people. God had rescued them. They had been living in slavery for 400 years. Generations and generations and generations and generations. To put it in perspective, they had been living in slavery for way longer than the United States has been a country. A lot of times when we think about the Ten Commandments and when we think about God's laws and God's rules, we think that God's rules and God's laws are the thing that are going to set us free. But that's not true. Keep in mind, when God gives the commandments, the commandments aren't given to free people. People. The commandments are given to free people. What what do I mean when I say that? On the next slide, what we've got, just to kind of summarize that, is the commandments reveal how free people live. God didn't give the people the commandments when they were living in slavery and say, follow these rules and then I'll save you. God rescued them from slavery. He gave them their freedom. He gave them salvation. He gave them hope. He gave them their future. And then he gave them the rules. I think this is critically important for us to understand, not just when it comes to God's commands, but when it comes to God in general. So often, we treat God's commands like a map, and if I had it with me, I would show you that we treat God's plans like a map. See it? (laughs) Imagine it with me. And we think, God's rules for me are a road map, and if I follow this one, then I follow that one, then I follow this one, then I follow that one, then I'll get to freedom. But that's not true. God's rules, God's commandments are actually much more like the manufacturer's manual. This is the manual to my Honda. It's not to tell me how to get somewhere. It's to tell me how to use it. When God gives us commands, God's not saying, follow these commands and then I'll give you a life. God's saying, no, I I have given you a life. I have given you freedom. This is how free people live. See, the people, they hadn't been free for an extremely long time. For 400 years, they were living under the rule of Pharaoh. And in that ancient culture, Pharaoh was actually considered a deity, a god. And so they lived under this god, if you will, Pharaoh, and followed Pharaoh's rules. And it was slavery, and it was oppression, and it was cruel, and it was terrible. But God says, you don't live under that oppression. You don't live under that slavery anymore. Instead, you live in freedom, in my freedom. Here's how it works. You don't have any other gods. You don't have Pharaoh. And you don't have the thousands of gods that the Egyptian culture placed on the Hebrew people in those days either. It's assumed that there were probably about 2,000 gods that the ancient Egyptians and the people that they had under slavery would have worshipped. They had a God for the ocean, they had a God for the sun, they had a God for the moon, a God for the stars, a God for the storms. And God says, you don't live under their rule. God tells them, you must not have any other God but me. They don't get to tell you who you are. They don't get to make you. I made you. What makes you, you? This is a really good question for us to ask when we want to find out, what's my God? I mean, I get it, you're in church, maybe you identify as a Christian, and so the easy answer today when I ask you, who's your God? You say, God, Jesus, yay, Holy Spirit. But practically, who's your God? I think a great way for us to to answer this question is to ask that question, what makes you, you? You can go back a slide. And when I think about it, I think about it like this. You may not recognize this right away, but does anybody already know what this is? Mr. Potato Head. I was shocked this week when I found out that Mr. Potato Head existed before Toy Story. It came out in like 1958 or something. (laughs) I had no clue. Oh, you all knew! (laughs) (laughs) I really set myself up for that one. Hmm you're judgmental. Okay. Um, I'm kidding. You're not. You're amazing. Did anybody have one like in the 60s when it originally came out? Awesome. Cool. Very cool. Awesome. I had one after Toy Story. (laughs) And the thing that's fun about Mr. Potato Head is you get to put him together and you get to see all the things that make him him, right? Or if you have a Mrs. Potato Head, you've had what makes her her and you get to put all these pieces together and, and you start to see like some, someone, something is being formed. And, it, and it's kind of cool, right? To see that happen. Imagine you're Mr. or Mrs. Potato Head. It's not an insult, it's just an illustration. What is it that you believe is putting you together? What is it that you believe that when you'll have it, all of your pieces, all of your things will finally line up? It will finally make you, you. Like, maybe you're not Mr. Potato Head, but think about your heart as Mr. Potato Head. What do you think is the thing that's going to hold your heart together? What do you think is the thing that's going to make you complete, make you whole? If it's not God, it's, it's an idol. An idol is anything more fundamental to your identity than God. An idol is something that Mr. Potato Head would say can put me together and hold me together but it's not something that's out of this world, something that created this world. It is an idol. An idol is where we rest our heart. At the end of the day, whether things have gone right or gone wrong, we could lean back on that thing and say, at least I have that. So now let me ask you, what's your God? What makes you, you? God has been pleading with us God doesn't have to, but God has been pleading with us, let me be your God. Recognize that I am your maker, that I am your creator. Not only is God worthy of it, but God has shown that he deserves it by his action, by his position and by his temperament toward us by his feeling toward us, by his actions for us. It says this back in the text in Exodus chapter 20, you must not have any other God but me. You must not make yourself an idol of any image or any kind of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That is a verse and that is a word, jealous, that could really trip us up, Right? Because maybe you're thinking, you know, I'd like to have a God, I'd like to have a thing that holds me together, but that seems a little selfish and I don't necessarily like that. But keep in mind, how is God jealous? Well, the word that's used for it in the Hebrew is this, it's kanah. Go ahead and say kana. And kana literally means ardent and zealous jealousy. It's really only ever attributed to God throughout the Hebrew scriptures. It is used six times. And it is ardent and it is zealous jealousy. It is actually a play on two different words in ancient Hebrew languages that puts them together, and when they are together, it shows that there is a mother bird protecting her nest. Oftentimes, when we think about jealousy, we think about taking things that aren't ours, but when God is jealous, God is protecting what belongs to him. So let's go ahead and shift what it means to be jealous when we think about God. Jealous people take, but our jealous God protects You are safe with God. You belong with God. You are secure in God. You are held together by the God who makes you, you. And in a world where people are trying to take and trying to grab, God says, I will give and I will protect. Like a mother bird looking over her nest. God is jealous in that he protects us. So how could we not keep this God first? How could we not keep this our priority in our life? Now here's what might surprise us. This has to do with every single piece of our life. I know that sometimes when we walk out of this space, we walk out of this building, we walk out of our Bible studies, we walk out of our small groups, we think, well that was nice for there, but I don't know if I'm going to put it over here. All of a sudden we think that as Christians, I don't have to see my life through the lens of the gospel. Instead I will apply the gospel when necessary. But God wants to be God over every single place and every single piece of your life. And it's actually very advantageous for us to do that and the people around us. Because when we mess up on this first commandment, it actually influences the rest of the sin in our life. I would even say that it is the root of the other sin in our life. There's this ancient theologian and his name was Saint Augustine. Go ahead and say Augustine. And St. Augustine came up with this term called disordered love. Disordered love. Disordered love. Oftentimes our sin happens because we put out of order the way that we should love something. It means that the thing that we should love seventh, we love third. The thing that we should love second, we love tenth. It's when we love our career more than we love our family and our relationships that are so much more important than the thing that we do nine to five gets the, suffers because of it. We disorder our love. I had an example of this very recently. I thought, okay, I've got this really exciting thing coming up in my life, but when we don't keep things in order, oftentimes we suffer for it and the people around us suffer for it. The reason why I was gone the last couple of weekends is because my wife and I, we went on an international trip to Denmark. We were over in Europe. I was speaking at a conference over there. No big deal. I'm international. But anyway, so <laughs> I, went with, I went with Pastor Richard from our West Des Moines campus. And uh, my dad is our connection to Denmark, so <laughs> let that humble me. And I was so looking forward to these sites. And I'm telling you, I'm not necessarily a planner, but I had every single thing planned out to a T. We were ready to go. I even bought air-sealed, air-packaged containers for my luggage so I could fit more and squeeze it into that suitcase. Before we're leaving, my wife looks at me, what are you doing? I'm, I'm vacuuming out the air for my luggage. <laughs> I was so planned and I was so ready. I was jumping already into the trip. I mean, I was there. Then, the Friday when we're supposed to leave, we get to the airport, and as we're checking in, the airline agent looks at me with this look of death. And she said, I'm so sorry, you can't go. I'm like, what do you mean I can't go? Your passport expires in 90 days. And I am like... God is my witness. If you come up to me after the service and say, well, I knew that, I will walk away. I'm not ready for that. (laughs) And apparently if you travel to Europe and your passport expires within 90 days of the return date, you cannot go. She said, I'm sorry. You're not going to Europe. You can't take all these pictures. Instead, you are going to El Paso, Texas, Home of the miners, go UTEP! (laughs) My wife and I did not go to Rome, we did not go to Switzerland like we had planned. We were in El Paso, Texas, a lovely town. Just, Just not what I had planned. And I know it's a silly example, and I know it's a very human mistake, and I know that even the airline agents didn't know about that rule, for goodness sakes! But because I didn't put things in the right order, together, my wife and me, we were suffering because of it. Technically, she could have gotten on the plane and just left, but she loves me, so she went with me to El Paso, Texas. (laughs) And I'll tell you this much. If you want to know what chaos and disaster looks like, walk into a passport agency on the day that people need to leave the country. (laughs) We're sitting in the passport agency, well, I am alone, because I was the only one who could go there. I get there at 7.30 in the morning, and I have to get on a plane to get to Europe at 1.30 in the afternoon. Like, terrifying stuff. But I'm thinking, I'm calm, I'm cool, I'm collected, I mean, come on, people come to me with their stuff, I don't need it, I'm good! And so we're sitting in there, and about every 30 seconds, someone breaks out into tears. My trip is ruined! And I'm thinking, it's not all about the trip, it's okay, it's fine. (laughs) Oh, these people, they're idolizing their trip, it's what makes them them, I guess. At one point, there was a, a man who is a zookeeper, uh, and he needed to get to Kenya. And he began to cry loudly. And the only way I could describe him is he's, he was like a giant Tarzan. And he grabs my shoulder and he begins crying and says, My zoo is on the line for $4,000 if I can't get this passport. And I'm like, OK, calm down, right? He starts to sniffle, he looks at me, and he says, Thanks for getting me through that, man. I'm like, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> Eventually, he gets his passport and he's happy and he's walking away. Meanwhile, I'm, I'm just staying calm. I'm saying, "Okay, I'm staying fine." I had to get on that plane at 1:30, and by about 12 o'clock, I'm sweating. By 12:15, I'm shaking. By 12:30, I'm just standing in the window of the passport agent, saying, I'm, "I'm here. Do you see me?" By 12:30, I'm on my knees. And by 12.40, within an hour of having to get on the plane, they hand me the passport. And it's funny, that story doesn't have a lot of resolution as to say, oh, and I learned that that trip was not my idol. No, that trip was my idol, wasn't it? I was panicking. I was freaking out. I was thinking that everything was ruined if I couldn't go to Denmark and be international. But would I have still been me? The answer is yes, I still would have been me. I still would have been me. And I'm glad it didn't work out like that. But I still would have been me. My life is held together by something bigger than a trip. But the things in my life do suffer when I put them out of order. Do you know that our sin, when we don't put God first, it doesn't just impact us, it impacts the people around us? It says this in Exodus chapter 20, and it seems pretty harsh. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. And I think this every single Sunday when I watch the Bears and I ask my parents, how dare you give me this fanmanship? Why would you do that to me? Like, our our sin has a big impact on the people around us. When we get things out of order, it makes the people around us suffer. Our sin is very, very social. But keep this in mind, too. Remember, God protects. It says, but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So our sin traps us for a moment, but God's grace is forever. Who deserves to be first? Who deserves to have our attention? Who is worthy? And I know that there are all these different competing voices in our life. And so what we try to do is we try to control them. We try to manipulate them. We try to find things that just match our way of life, right? And it's just not good for us. In the book of Deuteronomy, God restates the Ten Commandments to his people. But in the chapter just before, God tells the people, here's where you went wrong with it, right? So it says this in Deuteronomy chapter 4 You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. While flames from the mountain shot into the sky, you heard the sound of his words, but didn't see his form. There was only a voice. I know that sometimes the reason why we turn to other things instead of wait patiently upon the Lord, as the scriptures tell us to do, is because these other things, they have a face, they have an object. We can carry them. And for our real problems, we want a real thing. I don't know, like money. I don't know, like status, I don't know, like power. I don't know, like likes on social media, something just to get us through the moment, something that's real and practical and tangible. But it won't actually do us any good. God's got more power than that. If I can go back to our Mr. Potato Head thing, sometimes I don't think that Mr. Potato Head just represents our heart. I think that Mr. Potato Head actually represents what we want God to be. Because what's so fun about Mr. Potato Head? We get to customize Mr. Potato Head, Right? Like, we get to tell Mr. Potato Head who he is. Maybe I don't want his eyeballs there. I want them on the side of his head because it's fun. I don't know, maybe I want him to have an ear for eyes and I want one arm to be higher than the other. It's customizable. It's fun. I don't really like his hat, so why would I give him that? And all of a sudden, I've got this object that I can control. And I've got this object that has form based upon what I wanted, but it doesn't have a voice. It can't speak to me. It can't respond to me. And God is telling his people, I'm so much better than that. Don't you remember when I saved you? Don't you remember when you approached me? Don't you know that I don't have physical form? When Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3, he's speaking with a Pharisee named Nicodemus, and Jesus said, God is like the wind. It's always been blowing. It goes where it wants. It goes when it wants. You can't control it, but it has voice. The reality is, is that our idols have no voice, they only have form. But God says with a loud voice, he will not conform to what we want and to what we need. Excuse me, he will not conform to what we want, but he will be what we need. And listen, I know, I know what it's like to create an idol. I know that we do it out of desperation. I know it's because we want to have something to hold. I know it's because we want something to hold us. So it starts off as just this, des- as this good desire. Like, I want security. And so maybe I seek social media likes for that. You know, I want certainty, and so I chase money for that. I want acceptability, and so I chase all sorts of relationships and seek those to fulfill me. I mean, I get it. It starts with this okay desire, but then it turns into something bad. And it turns into this object. For the ancient people of Israel, God's people, what they did is they decide, "Well, God, you're not giving us what we want. We can't see it. In fact, when they're wandering through the wilderness after they had been saved from Egypt, they start asking Moses, their leader, why didn't you just leave, leave us in Egypt? Why didn't you just leave us under Pharaoh's rule? Why didn't you just leave us in slavery? At least we had, food have, we had food to eat there. And so they create this idol. It's Baal. Some people call it Baal. Some people call it Baal. We don't really know. Ancient Hebrew is a dead language, but... Baal. And it was this golden calf that they could form. It had no voice, but they could hold it. And they could control it. And they would go to it. And I wonder if they would go to it, because at least I can see it. At least there's something there. And it's interesting, maybe we think of idolatry and we think, well, we don't struggle with that these days, because we don't have those statues that we bow down and worship to. We don't have these gold shrines in our places of worship to where we say, well, that's my God. And maybe we're not bowing down to a golden calf, but I think that there are some other animals that we oftentimes bow down to. (laughs) Who do I want to offend today? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, what is it for you? I mean, I I was like, man, I don't know, we just talked about this a few weeks ago, but I was like, I don't know that I can talk about idolatry in this country without talking about the idolization of political party or nationalism or our ideas, or a certain person, or a certain candidate, or a certain news source. We bow down at these things. And we think, well, they're talking to me. They're saying things. Clearly, they have a voice. No, they're controlled. They're formed based on popular opinion and what's going to get them views and ratings. We think that, oh, those are the things with the leading voices. No, they're not. They're just things that we've been forming for generations and generations. They make a lousy God. It's not just political parties. It's anything that we try to put in God's seat. And here's the issue with that. All of these different things, all they want to do is take from us. And I'm not saying that anybody who's in politics is evil. I'm not saying that anybody who's in media is evil. That is a really, really dangerous road that we would go down. And I think it's important that we don't do that. But what I am saying is that these promises that these false idols offer to us are never met. It's interesting. Idols promise Comfort in the same way that the people wanted comfort from Baal. But they only offered prison. What's your idol? If it's money, you will never have enough. If it's power, you'll always hold on to it, scared that someone's going to take it from you. If it's beauty, it'll never be enough because you'll always look in a mirror and try to find something that's wrong with you until one day you're old enough to see that there is something off, that you're getting older. <laughs> Been there. there. <laughs> What is it? Idols promise comfort and they offer prison. We're trapped by these things. But Jesus promises comfort and he grants us freedom. Jesus has granted us freedom. When we live by God's rules, we are not confined to a spoil sports field Instead, we are kept away from the things that hurt us and disorder our love and disorient the people around us. And instead, let us enjoy the freedom and salvation that God wanted us to always have. So as I start to wind down this sermon, I think that it's very important that we look at our tendencies that, that, that influence us and make us make idols. So how do we know that, that we're making idols? I think one of the first things that we do when we make idols is we distance God. And the funny thing is when we're distancing God and we're making an idol out of distancing God is we're actually saying that God is very, very big. God is too big. And God is so big and God is so far away that God wouldn't care about what's happening right here. And that's simply not true. Have you read your scriptures? Don't you remember what John chapter one says? The word, God himself became flesh. He became human and showed up around us. In the message paraphrase translation of the Bible, it says that God pitched his tent around us. He's living here. God cares deeply. And it absolutely influences the way that we live this life. God is not far away waiting for us to die and enter the gates of heaven. He's come to us. Sometimes pastors will hear things like, you know, I wish you'd just preach the gospel. And oftentimes that's code for, I wish that you would just talk about what happens after we die. But don't you know that we worship a God who comes and deals with the problems that we're living in right now. God is not satisfied and content with us living in slavery today because one day we'll be free. God is working on our freedom now. He says you don't have to live like that. One of the titles that's given to Satan in the scriptures, he's the father of lies. Satan wants you to believe that you are shackled up and chained to these idols that make you think I have to live for those things and those will make me me. It's simply not true. God has shown up in Jesus, in the form of Jesus, and he has the key. He's unlocked those things. He said, you're free. Live this life now. We can actually go into this world with God. We don't go into this world and the problems of this world and the issues that are happening around us say, God, I hope you're watching. We actually follow God into them. The second thing that we do is we domesticate God. What I mean when I say that we domesticate God is we oftentimes say that instead of saying God is so big, oftentimes we just say God is so small. Say, well, God could never actually fix my problems because God's never done anything for me. I don't know, maybe you've felt like that before when it seems like God is quiet, when it seems like God is not responding to you. Don't you know that God hears every single word? The Psalms say that he captures every single one of our tears, keeps them in a bottle. It's so cliche to say, but it is so true. God does not waste our pain. We worship a God who shows up to funerals, like in John chapter 11, and he weeps. He cries. There is no problem that is too small for the creator of this world, and there is no problem that is too big for the creator of this world. He gets very, very close Yes, he makes these humble claims. Yes, he gets on his knees and washes the feet of disciples, which might make us start to think that he is small. But don't you understand he defeated death? He walked out of a tomb. Don't you domesticate God? Don't you think that God's not good enough? Don't you think that our thoughts and prayers don't make an effort or don't make a difference in this world? They lead us into action because we've communicated with the creator of this world who cares about the problems of this world. We cannot distance God. We cannot domesticate God. And finally, sometimes we diminish what God can speak to. And this is a big problem for us. We diminish what God can speak to. Sometimes we think that, oh, well, you know, God is for that part of my life and church is for this part of my life and then the rest of my life is for other parts of my life. God commands us with his first commandment. That is not true. It says this in one of the Psalms when it's talking about our idols. Idols have mouths but cannot speak and eyes but cannot hear, and noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, and feet but cannot walk, and throats but cannot make a sound. What is that saying about your idol? It's saying that your idol is muted. Your idol has no power. It looks like it does. Money looks like it's going to solve all of our problems. Maybe a political figure looks like it's going to solve all of our problems. Power, status, maybe even the really good things in this life, like family or a relationship or a marriage. That'll be the thing that really fulfills me, that'll give me everything that I ever wanted. I know this. I know that there are the things that we look at in this world and we think if I just have that, then I will be fulfilled. But those things can't speak, those things can't see, those things can't feel, those things can't walk, and those things can't make a sound. Let me make it really personal. Those things can't speak to me. Those things cannot hear me. Those things cannot feel my problems. Those things cannot walk with me. And those things cannot make a sound to the enemies that scare me. And the scary thing about this is, is those who make idols are just like them, the psalmist says. We think, oh my goodness, my money is making me powerful. My status is giving me everything that I want. My romance, my looks, my beauty, my friends. It's giving me everything that I could have ever wanted. What's it actually doing? It's muting my existence. It's imprisoning me. It's forcing me to live under a God who wants to force me into slavery. You work for me. You give to me. Don't we understand this? To make money, we have to give more of ourselves. Every single God in this world that is not the one true God says, your life for mine. It happens with our careers. It happens with our money. It happens in the pursuit of power. It happens in the pursuit of beauty. It even happens in the pursuit of some really good things, like children, like family, like generations. But don't we know it impacts everybody around us? We make our kids our our, our God. We make our parents our God. They weren't meant to be our God. It's not fair to them. And all it's doing to us is it's muting us, it's creating us into these figures that have form but no voice. Idols take. It's all they do. They take. They take our voice, they take our sight. They take our mobility. They take our purpose. And then there's Christ. And in Philippians chapter 2, we have this incredible juxtaposition. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Idols take, Jesus gives. Idols say, less of you for more of me. Jesus gave until the point of death. He gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. Idols take and take and take and take, Give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more, and I'll give you a diminished return. I will mute your existence if we're being honest about them. But Jesus, he gave, and he gave, and he gave, and he gave. I think another way to put this is that idol that we thought was going to hold our heart together, it it breaks our heart. Because it's never enough, is it? Even the best things in this life make a lousy God. When I was living in the Twin Cities and I was an intern up there for seminary, there was this couple, their names were Bob and Mary Nell Clemens. I really looked up to these two. Bob was in his 90s by the time that I met him. He was so kind to me in the way that he would share wisdom and advice and also encouragement. After I gave my first sermon, he came up and he said, That was amazing! I said, Oh, it was all God. He said, It wasn't that good. I really looked up to him, and I also really looked up to his marriage, him and Mary Nell. They had this beautiful marriage. They were always laughing together, always smiling at one another, always encouraging one another. Even in their late ages, they're holding hands, making out in the back of the church. But it was clear that they had deep affection for one another. Um, Bob fell and he broke his hip and things declined pretty quickly and um, and soon after that he died and at Bob's funeral there's the casket and there's Mary Nell and Mary Nell kept saying the same thing to every single person who came through the line and she said it to me too I am so sorry. She said, I am too. But there's good news. Bob's in a coffin today, but Jesus is not. Every single idol in this world, even the best of them, will one day be buried. Jesus will not. And even before Jesus died, he's having this conversation, and I just love the way that he drops hints so lovingly to people. He said this in the book of Luke chapter 20. My Father, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive, you see the stories where Jesus like resurrects somebody from the dead in one of the passages he's raising Jairus daughter this man named Jairus his daughter had died and it just says it's as if he wakes her up from her sleep don't you know that what is the greatest enemy what is the greatest defeat to any of us in this life is nothing but a bad night's sleep for our God And in the way that a parent would just wake their child from sleep, it's simple as that for God to say, you're alive. So Bob, he's alive. Your loved one, they're alive. Their death, keep this in mind, their death will not stop making you you because it didn't stop making them them. I mean, you get to a certain point in life where you start to think of those people where it's pretty hard to think about your life without them. To God, they are alive. Because God's not an idol that breaks your heart. Jesus is the protector of our hearts. I'm so sick and tired of following idols that break my heart that aren't enough, that I need more from. And I'm a sinner, and I'll keep on sinning. I know this, you probably know this about yourself. But don't you know that God lavishly shares his love to a thousand generations. And while our sin traps us for a moment, his grace lasts forever. His grace lasts forever no other gods than that. Know that nothing else makes you, you. And nothing can stop you from being you. Because you know the one true God. It was on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He gave up his seat quite literally. um, As he sat there with his disciples and he descended to the floor and he washed their feet. And in that same room, the God who gave and gave and gave showed just how much he would give. So on the night when Jesus was betrayed that he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples to eat. He said, take and eat. Did you hear that? You take. This is my body, and it's given for you. Then again, after supper, Jesus took the cup, he poured it out for all of them to drink. He said, this cup is the new covenant. It's my blood, and it is shed for you and for the forgiveness of all sins. And when you drink this, when you take remembrance of him. We live in a world where our idols take and take and take. We worship a God who gives and gives and gives. And when you take his love, may you never be the same. When you come down and receive communion today, may you never be the same. Whatever idols we leave in our seats today, may we never return to them. May we we walk with the God who walks with us. May we speak to the God who has a voice. May we know the God who knows how we feel. May we love the God who loves this world.